the Lutheran Hour, bringing Christ to the nations. The world tells us we must be useful in order to belong. However, Dr. Michael Ziegler says that's not how God sees us. God's bond with us is organic. You belong to God not because you're useful, but you get to become useful to God and his people because you belong. And we'll visit with Dr. Jeff Gibbs. I used to say that Jesus turns the world upside down, but uh, it probably would be more accurate to say he puts the world right side up. That's all just ahead today on The Lutheran Hour. Hello, I'm Mark Eicher. Glad to be with you once again and, as always, thankful for your faithful support. Your gifts and prayers help the Lutheran Hour bring Christ to the nations and the nations to the church. Learn more at lutheranhour.org. Now here's our speaker, Dr. Michael Ziegler. Consider these two scenarios. A man's having serious trouble with his old car. He takes it into his mechanic. The mechanic gives him the bad news. The car needs a complete overhaul. It's going to cost him $4,000 to fix it. $4,000 is a lot of money, more than the car is even worth. So he decides to cut his losses, get rid of the car, and use the money to buy a new one. Sounds like a reasonable decision, right? Scenario two. An older man's arm is mangled in a car accident. They rush him to the emergency room, take x-rays, do a full examination, and give him the bad news. It's going to need a complete overhaul. It will take multiple surgeries, weeks of expensive, excruciating physical therapy, and months of strenuous, tedious exercises. And he does it. Almost without thinking twice, even with all the costs, all the risks, and the possible complications— Other options aren't even worth considering. Sounds like a reasonable decision, right? The two scenarios are different, and the decisions made are different, but neither is surprising. That's because the thing needing the overhaul is different, and the intensity of the bond with it. A car is property, but your arm is part of you. You have a car only because it's useful. But you use your arm because you have it. Your arm is a given. A car is not. Authors Stephen and Alex Kendrick used that illustration in their book, The Love Dare. And when I read it, I thought, the world sure treats us more like a car than an arm. If you're not useful, you're not wanted. If you don't perform, you don't really belong. Your significance in the world's eyes isn't a given. And Elizabeth knew it. Elizabeth's experience is recorded in the ancient biography of Jesus of Nazareth called the Gospel of Luke. Even though Elizabeth lived 2,000 years ago, her experience isn't all that different from ours. Like our culture, hers had a standard of usefulness. In our culture, your usefulness in society's eyes depends on your productivity, on your appearance, on your personal contacts. And it wasn't too different in Elizabeth's day. 
Although people in her culture were probably more concerned about honor than usefulness. And honor mostly came by birthright. If you were born to an honored father in an honored family, you'd be honored too. Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, for example, was the son of an honored father, an honored family. Zachariah was born to a priestly family. But he was also born in Israel during the time of its occupation by the Roman Empire, so the honor was mostly limited to his own people. And in some ways, Elizabeth shared in that honor. But in other ways, her society saw her as useless. Because she had no children. As a woman in the ancient world, her main source of honor, of her usefulness, would have been her children. But she didn't have any. And apparently she couldn't. And she was a disgraced old woman because of it. She wasn't fully part of her society. She didn't really belong. Her significance was in question. The world was treating her like it treats us. When we're underperforming, unattractive, disconnected, the world sees us more like an old car than it does an injured arm. But Elizabeth's people, the people of Israel knew that the story should be different. The world as it is now says, you have to be useful in order to belong. But that's not how it was meant to be. In the beginning, people simply belonged by the surprising grace of God. And because you belonged, you could also become useful. The book of Genesis, the first in ancient Israel's scriptures, said that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Now, there was a lot of discussion about what being made in the image of God meant, but one way of saying it is that the bond God chose to create between himself and humanity was intense. Not a functional bond like you have with your car, but an organic bond like you have with your arm. And the story told in the Bible proves this out. Because when humanity ceased being functional, ceased being useful for God's good purposes, God didn't get rid of them. He didn't give up on them. Now, God doesn't need us like you and I need us arms, but God chose to treat the bond as organic, even when we severed ourselves from him. But the Bible continues, because we have severed ourselves from our gracious creator, the whole world is out of joint now. And the evidence for this is all around us. You see it in the way you're treated by others and in the way you treat them as though they have to be useful to belong. Although, each of us secretly hopes that we might still belong even when we fail to be useful, 
even when we get old and die? Isn't death the ultimate expression of uselessness? But secretly we hope that it's not. And it is that secret hope God chose to fulfill for you through his people Israel. And surprisingly, disgraced, useless old Elizabeth is part of the fulfillment. Listen to how it goes in Luke chapter 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was of the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous before God, observing the commandments and regulations of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, as is the custom of the priests, to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. When the time of the burning of incense came, all the gathered people were outside praying. Then an angel of the Lord appeared standing on the right-hand side of the altar. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, gripped with fear. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to name him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice at his birth because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from before his birth. Many people in Israel, he will turn back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How? (laughs) How will I know this? Because I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were wondering why Zechariah was staying so long in the temple. And when he came out, he couldn't speak to them, but they realized that he had seen a vision because he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. And when the time of his service had ended, he returned home. And after this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant. For five months, she remained in seclusion 
She said, The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has looked upon me with favor. He has taken away my disgrace from among my people. So you heard Elizabeth's disgrace. What's yours? Is it not being able to perform like you used to? Not having the job you once had or the family you had? Or maybe you didn't make the team. You didn't make the cut. You didn't get the job. You didn't get the family. Whatever it is that is making you feel useless or fear becoming useless, that disgrace, that shame, it isn't from God. God has come to take it away, but not on our terms, not on the world's terms. Sometimes God's honor looks like disgrace in the world's eyes. Just think how useless Zechariah must have looked not being able to talk for nine months. And Elizabeth endured a lifetime of it before God intervened. And their son, John, even with such an honored birthright, in the world's eyes, he died a disgraced and condemned man. What God was doing was much bigger than John and Zechariah and Elizabeth, but through them, God was preparing the way, the way for God himself to be born on earth. God's son, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, would take on his own set of arms and legs and fingers and toes, a human body that could be held and flogged and fastened to a disgraceful cross. Israel's prophets had spoken of God in this way, metaphorically. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said to his people, I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. But now, in Jesus, the metaphorical would become literal. The word became flesh. Crucified and raised from the dead, God's bond with us is organic. Inspired by God's Spirit, a follower of Jesus named Paul once called the collective body of the followers of Jesus the body of Christ, the Lord. By faith in Jesus, we aren't simply his property. We are part of him. And a central mystery of our faith is that when we eat and drink the bread and the wine of the supper that he instituted, we are truly receiving the body and blood of Jesus. The intensity of the bond between us and Jesus is organic. In Jesus, God's bond to you is a given. It doesn't depend on your usefulness in the world's eyes. It cannot be threatened by the world's disgrace. It cannot be severed by death because Jesus rose from the dead and took you with him in his body. You belong to God, not because you're useful. 
but you get to become useful to God and his people because you belong. This past week, I was talking with a friend named Jesse. I hadn't seen Jesse in years. He told me how two years ago, his son had been born with serious health problems. Things were going so badly, his son was going to need a complete overhaul. To live, the child would need a new kidney. And when they told Jesse that he would be an eligible organ donor, he gladly volunteered, even though such an operation would carry considerable costs and risks and possible complications, he did it willingly, without thinking twice. Other options weren't even worth considering. He gave of his own body to save his child. Not because he could be useful, but because he loved him. And it's not all that surprising, right? A loving father would gladly give his right arm to save his child. What's surprising is that the God who created the universe did it for us. Would you pray to him with me? Dear Father, please forgive me when I treat others like they have to be useful before they can belong. And remind me that I can be useful to others only because I belong to you. In Jesus, we pray, with his whole body, the church, living and reigning with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. You're listening to The Lutheran Hour. At lutheranhour.org, you'll find free resources, archived audio, our mobile app, and much more, all at lutheranhour.org. And now back to our speaker, Dr. Michael Ziegler. Thank you, Mark. Today I'm visiting with Dr. Jeff Gibbs. He is an emeritus professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He teaches about life with God as he has revealed himself in Jesus and especially in the New Testament of the Bible. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. You're very welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I once heard you say that, that pastors and teachers, they shouldn't bring the Bible down to people, but rather bring people up to the Bible. Do you, do you still stand by that? Uh, Walter Meyer II actually said that, and what he meant by that I think is still a valid point that, on the one hand, you... Uh, it's a danger for theologians, trained pastors like you and me, to use technical terminology like justification or limited atonement or whatever when we're talking about things. And those things always need to be explained. Nevertheless, the Bible does have a certain way of speaking, and we'll get into this uh, when we think about the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so yeah, I think it is important to help God's people who are very smart, they just don't have the formal training yeah. that you and I have. And what's the what's the jargon? What's the language? And so yeah, to bring God's people's understanding up to the way the Bible talks so that they can talk that way too. Well, that's the goal. We're going to try to do that. We're going to help bring us all up to be more 
faithful, capable readers, listeners of the Bible. We're talking about the gospel uh, according to Luke, uh, not the gospel of Luke. Uh, right. Yeah. So let, let's let's just talk a little bit about that distinction. You you brought that to my attention once that these are all these four biographies, ancient biographies of Jesus. The the formal titles are the according to right. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, right, not right. of. So wh- why is that an important Yeah, it's a, that's a, a small point, but I think it is important that there is one good news, there's one gospel, there's one message centered in God's Son, Jesus, and what He has done and is doing and will do for us and for the world. But each one of these, uh, as you call them rightly, our gospels in the New Testament are a form of an, sort of an ancient biography. Uh, they have a main character, <laughs> for sure, Jesus, right? But it's the same good news. But here's that good news told according to Matthew, according to Mark. And you pointed this out to me in class that we should try to read and listen to each gospel on its own terms. And I noticed even now and, and before you pointed that out, I kind of have and had a fifth gospel, so mm. to speak, uh-huh. a conglomeration or a mashup of all the things that I've heard about Jesus, and it's my running narrative in my brain uh-huh, that uh-huh. I think of as the life of Jesus. Right. Even though that's a natural tendency, why is it good to let each gospel tell us that particular perspective on yeah, Jesus? Yeah, well, that's a great uh, question, Mike, and I, I think it is important. Uh, for one thing, it does honor the way, uh, we would say, many Christians would say, the Holy Spirit himself gave this good news to us. He didn't give us uh, a harmony, as we sometimes call it, of all the things that are recorded that Jesus said and did. Of course, we don't even have everything, of course. Yeah. Uh, not even close. Wouldn't be enough books in the world. Exactly, <laughs> as John tells us at the end of his according to. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the Holy Spirit saw fit to give us uh, four uh, portraits or four uh, narratives. If you mishmash them together, so to speak, uh, it's not that that's invalid, it's not wrong or something, but uh, you'll tend to lose some distinct uh, emphases that Matthew wants to make or that Luke, we're going to talk about Luke, wants to offer to us that are only offered in Luke. Something that's a little unique to Luke is this title of Savior. Right. Matthew and Mark don't call Jesus Savior. Not explicitly. Yeah. In fact, it's the first thing we hear of the announcement to the right. shepherds, unto right. you, a Savior. Is born, Christ born. the Lord, right. And there's much emphasis on Jesus bringing salvation. What does that look like, though, in Luke? What does salvation mean? You might get at it this way, just in general, one way to talk about uh, salvation or a savior is to finish the phrase and to say salvation from, from what, mm-hmm. right? Or a savior from what? And uh, that implies that there's something wrong. Yes. Right? There are dangers, there's enemies, whatever, that the situation into which a savior comes is a bad situation. And that actually is kind of an entry point into how Luke over and over what likes to present Jesus as Savior, the salvation that Jesus brings as a reversal of the current situation. Okay, because the, the current world, situation, there's something yeah, wrong. The, the, there's, there's bad stuff wrong <laughs> in the world. There's sin, there's evil rulers, there's Satan, you know. And so from the very beginning in Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary's song, for instance, after the angel announces that she'll be the mother of the Savior, she says things like, 
He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree, right? He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent empty away. See, that's reversal. Mm -hmm. That's God intervening in the world to say, no, this isn't right, and I'm going to turn what's wrong into right. I'm going to reverse it. And so I think as you think about that, on the one hand, it's a very common sense way of thinking, but it's extremely profound. And and that explains why a repentance can be so hard sometimes, mm-hmm. because God is calling me to let go of my current sin or my current pride, whatever, and let Him reverse that situation. It explains why uh, why powerful figures in the Gospel of Luke and today easily find themselves resisting Jesus. Jesus has come to bring a change of affairs, uh, right? Salvation, and that involves overturning or reversing the present situation, right? not just change for change's sake, but no. there, this is a bad situation. I used to say that Jesus turns the world upside down, but uh, it probably would be more accurate to say he puts the world right side up. Yeah. Right? Well, let's talk some more about this resistance, because if that's, if that's really Luke's good news, if that's the good news of Jesus, according to Luke, right. then... It might not sound like good good news if you're right. happy with the way things are. Right. With right. this present upside down state of the world. It's not a surprise that so many people hated Jesus. I mean, we we tend to think of Jesus gentle, Jesus meek and mild, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and Jesus of Nazareth during his ministry, I'd be willing to say was able to be the most gentle human being that ever lived. And yet, at the same time, he was also the most powerful and unstoppable human being that ever lived. i was been listening to the Gospel of Luke, and one scene that stands out to me is when the Pharisees come to tell Jesus that Herod's after him, <laughs> and he says, you go tell that fox. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I cast out demons, I heal, and the third day I finish my course. Basically, you're not going to get in my way. Exactly. No one's going to get in my way. You can't stop me. Well, very good. That's a lot to, to chew on and, and meditate on as we, as we read and listen to the gospel, the good news, according to St. Luke. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting in his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. This has been a presentation of Lutheran Hour Ministries.